Hebrews chapter 10. The title of today's message is Why Church? And I think that if we could answer that question from the Bible as we will do today with some of what is written about that question and what church is, I think that church would be a lot more solidified than we see it in reality in 2022. So about 586 B.C., Israel as a nation, Judah in particular, the ones that Jesus would descend from, were so casual about their beliefs that they were easily moved into worshiping gods that were false gods. They were easily pushed off of Yahweh and believing in Molech and believing in Tammuz and believing in any god of stone or wood or... So Jeremiah and Ezekiel get to write much about that because they're living in that time. We just read through Isaiah at home, and Isaiah is prophesying it as that is building. The church is very much the same. The church in 2022 is so casual about what they believe that church is what I want it to be. Church is what I say it is. I can do church at home. I can do church here. I can do church this way. And we've lost sight of what church is actually for what the purpose of the church is. So we're going to study that today in Hebrews 10. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, when we read in the Bible that the reason Jesus went to the cross was to do two things, to pay the price for sin and to begin his church, his body. Um, his spiritual body, which is those who are following him today. Help us to understand why, why Paul is so vehemently challenging us to do what you have told us to do in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to read verses that have played into significant importance in the last three years. And, and Paul is strenuously, as he would say it, in a verse we will read today, putting this forth. Hebrews chapter 10 is the clearest chapter in the Bible in a, in a single statement to why we do church. And we're going to build towards that, picking up where we left off last week. In verse 19 of Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, so he's not just writing to Jews, he's writing to Jewish believers as he writes the book of Hebrews. That's why they are his brothers and sisters. We read in chapter 2 that we as believers and these people as believers are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, the Jeremiah covenant that we just read in verses 16 and 17, a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, and Paul expands on all the theology that we've had to this time. That is his body. So we have all of these pictures and types of Christ going all the way back to the beginning of people who are a picture of the the tabernacle, as we've read in Hebrews, is an exact picture of the actual tabernacle in heaven. 
and we think of the tabernacle and the, the thing standing between the high priest and the most holy place was what would have been in Herod's temple when Jesus lived, a curtain that was about 60 feet high and wider than that and about four inches thick. And, and that's an impressive curtain that would have weighed tons. And the reason that it is that significant is that it cannot be penetrated. And Paul tells us here that that curtain in that temple, which the moment that Jesus died, ripped in two and opened and suddenly made visible something you could never look at, suddenly makes, makes something approachable you could never approach, and that is the throne of Christ on earth. Christ is no longer on that throne. When Jesus dies on the cross, it has been over 600 years since he actually sat on the throne in the temple because of the sin of those in Judah. But Paul says that curtain tearing is literally Christ's body tearing on the cross. So John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the gate to heaven. So the access to God and to his son on earth was through a throne in the Holy of Holies. And now that is ripped open. Paul has been explaining ever since chapter 6 that he entered into the most holy place by his own blood, anchoring our hope um, defending us before his Father and interceding 24-7. And as we practice communion today, we think of the curtain in the temple tearing. Paul says, think of Christ. He is the only access to that throne, and he had to give his body in order to gain for us to gain that access. So, verse 20, by a a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, one representing us in heaven, a high priest, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with water. So this, this conscience cleansing that, that God offers through repentance to those who follow his son, he literally takes the word of God and he wipes our conscience with it. So it is God's written, spoken word that cleanses a conscience, that can say something to something that is sinful and guilty and discouraging and depressing and why did that have to happen and why did I do this and, and why all of those things. The word of God says, we just read in verse 17 last week, then he adds their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. This is the new way into the Holy of Holies. This is the blood of Christ that is distinguished from blood from animals that could never take away sins. And now the blood of Christ has the power to clear us of our sins and cleanse our consciences. So he says that we, we enter into this through faith. Faith is 
In a simple definition, believing what God says is true and responding. When we believe what he says is true, whether we thought of ourselves as a sinner or not, we come to that realization, we realize that Christ can forgive us and that by his wounds we are healed, which was written 700 years before Christ died. Now, the new way in there says, because of what he has done, your sins and your your unrighteous acts will be remembered no more by God. Faith says, I believe you. Faith says, you died for me, I live for you. And that is the way that our consciences are cleansed, our sins are remembered no more. They are put in the depths of the ocean's floor as far as the east is from the west. God gives us those infinity pictures so we can realize that he's telling us the truth, that they will no longer be in view. And then he says, washed with pure water, and and the pure water is the word of God. How do we know that? Because in John chapter 15 and verse 3, the night that he would be betrayed, he says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking from Christ, writing from Paul, that husbands are to wash their wives with the word of God. So the pure water that he's talking about here is the word of God. You don't deserve heaven. You don't have to believe that you do. You did sin. You don't have to forget that you did it but you have to operate in the cleansed conscience that says, finished, paid for, off of his view, taken away from his sight. I am cleansed and I am clean. It is like saying to a prostitute, you are a virgin in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done. Verse 23 let us hold unswervingly. Here's the same verse sound. Paul gives that often in 1 Corinthians 15. He uses that. He's using it here. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Again, simple language. Believe that what he says is true. And verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Those two verses are the clearest two verses in the Bible as to why church. That is the clearest definition in scripture of why church. Why do I go to church? Um, what separates that from it. People will say today, I'm a Christian wherever I go, true story. I'm in church wherever I'm at. No, you're not. I'm I'm always operating in the church. Um, We were redesigned, reborn, born again to serve each other. You have in your notes there the, the three fold plan of God on earth right now and the order of his plan, which is given by the Apostle Paul. 
his first order of business that never gets moved aside and never gets replaced and it never becomes number two is that he will make Christians like Christ. Make people like Christ. So Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That's number one. There is nothing on planet Earth that precedes him making me and him making you like his son. He can't be effective in us and through us unless that's our priority, number one. It is a human nature to defend ourselves and to explain ourselves and um, to represent ourselves, and it is God's will that he gives us Christ's perspective, Christ's response, Christ's attitude. So at the end of um, 1 Corinthians 2, he says, no one has known the mind of the Lord, but we have the mind of Christ. We have access to being made like Christ in our mind. If that happens, then he has full authority in our lives. And in Philippians 2, 5, our attitude should be as that of Christ Jesus. We'll read that later. So number one, to change Christians. Does God love me all the time? Yes, he does. Is he content with where I'm at? No, he's not. He wants to change you. He wants to change me. He wants to make us like Christ. No matter how mature we are in the Lord, that will remain priority number one until I die. His goal is to make me like Christ. If I submit to that, then the second part of his plan is to change churches. So the number one oper, uh, modus operandi of the Holy Spirit is to make me like Christ. Number two is to make me like Christ in a body of believers being made like Christ. So, lordship in my life, number one. Unity in the church is number two. And then the third part of his plan is to change the world. To literally change the world out there by what is happening in here, by what is happening in me. And when we change even the order of those priorities, the plan fails. When I don't put my personal submission to Christ as an individual to be sanctified ahead of everything else, then I'm going through the motions in number two and I'm going through the motions in number three. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. This is a familiar verse, and we're going to lay a, a little bit of a foundation with these verses to understand what Jesus' purpose was for his disciples and what it is for us as disciples. So for three and a half years, he's been shaping them as individual disciples, and now he makes this declaration that, verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, pretty straightforward. Where I am, my servant also will be. 
My Father will honor the one who serves me. So we, we have this reality that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are omnipresent everywhere all the time. We also have a reality that each of them has a position that they are currently holding. God the Father is in heaven, and he's not moving until all of the enemies of Christ are destroyed in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, is the end of the enemies of Christ being destroyed. So his position is in heaven on his throne, our Father who art in heaven. Christ is telling us here that whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also, and whoever serves me, my Father will honor. Those are important statements. Christ's position is right here. This isn't the only position that he has, but you have in your notes there the description of his position in Revelation 1.20 through chapter 2, verse 1. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. So John literally saw a vision of Jesus Christ holding seven stars in his hand and walking. And now there's going to be no doubt to what John saw because Jesus is specifically going to describe it. So the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So first of all, the stars that John saw are angels. The definition of the word angel is messenger. It is not a winged creature or a flying creature or um, an Elohim or whatever. The definition of angel is messenger. So the seven stars, he tells John, are seven messengers in the seven churches. And he will explain um, even further as we go on. He says the seven stars are the seven, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So later in Ephesus, in these opening verses to the seven churches, in this same passage, he will say to Ephesus, you're still doing church, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. You have lost your first love. In other words, they're still doing good things, but Christ is not the center of what they're doing. Christ is not the reason for what they are doing. So he says, you've lost your first love. And he says, if you don't repent as a church, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. So he is writing to the seven angels of the seven churches. There are no angels appointed to churches in the Bible. He's writing to the seven messengers. So the messengers are the preachers in these churches. He's literally writing this to the shepherds, the pastors in these churches. John would get out of prison about a year after he would write Revelation and personally deliver these letters to the seven pastors in the seven churches. 
So Jesus says here that he's literally holding the preachers in his hand. Well, obviously it doesn't take long to figure out that he's only holding truth preachers. So before you say who is and who isn't, that's, that's just a fact. So, and he's only in truth churches because he tells Ephesus, who is still in the truth, but they're losing their reason for doing it. He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So in every church, figuratively and literally in God's eyes, when a group of believers forms a church, which when you start to understand, like Acts chapter 17 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, churches are put together in heaven before creation. So when you were going to be born again, it was predestined that you would be conformed into the image of his son. And it was decided which church you would serve him in. And when that, before the creation of the world, is understood, even before creation, Christ can put a lampstand down, anticipating that body of believers. And it will stay there, not based on the number of people who are there, but based on the faithfulness to the truth. And while they are willing, the teachers in those churches are literally being held in the hand, the right hand of Jesus Christ. So when we go back to John 12, 26, and we see that you know, whoever serves me must follow me, and, and where I am my servant will also be, and whoever serves me my father will honor, he's talking about the church. And he's, Paul will take us deeper into this. And John chapter 13, since we're in John there, verse 34 and verse 35, there's a church transition here. Israel was corporately elected. What in the world does that mean? It means that he chose a nation. So he even tells Rebekah when she is pregnant with Jacob and Esau, he says, two nations are in your womb. And then he prophesies to Rebekah the, the, the nation of Edom, which is Esau, and the nation of Israel, which is Jacob. And then he tells their future to her and time goes forward. They were chosen as a nation. The percentage of people who followed Christ in faith in Israel was pretty small, but the whole nation was chosen. So love your neighbor as yourself is given in the law, Leviticus 19. In other words, as soon as the Bible begins to unfold in written form, the culmination of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus brings those together throughout his ministry to love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a transition on the night at the Last Supper to the church that we read in verse 34. A new command I give you. He's about to die and the church is about to begin. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So one another in the Bible begins here at the Last Supper, which we're going to reflect on today. I give you a new command from love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love your neighbor as yourself, to love one another. And he puts that as the pinnacle. That's the starting place. He wants us always to love our neighbor as ourselves, atheist, Christian, Muslim, whoever they are. And we will do that most effectively if we do it in his order. And his order is love one another is pinnacle. It's, it's the starting point. It's the focus of your life to love one another. So he says in John chapter 15, um, in verse 12, he says, love each other just as I have loved you. He narrows it down even more. John 15, um, verse 17, love each other. He's speaking to the apostles who would lay the foundation of the church, and he's telling them, here's your command. Love each other. So we think of this three-pronged effect. He wants to change me. He wants to change us. He wants to reach the world. So three and a half years earlier from that night, he told them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now he has been teaching them for three years, and he says, here's your priority. Love each other. George Barna says that almost nine out of ten people who visit a church a second time give as their testimony the love that they had for each other. Makes sense, right? Jesus says that's how they're going to know that you follow me, is how you love each other. I saw a sign on a church this week as I was driving, reflecting on John 15. It's just kind of a smile thing. It says, he is divine. We are debranches. I thought that's pretty cool. It gets your attention, and that's what Jesus is teaching in John chapter 15. He is the vine, and we are the branches. Love each other just like he loved us. Back to Hebrews chapter 10. And actually, we're going to go to Galatians. I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 1. So as we understand, I want to start from Galatians chapter 1. It's, I'm not going to inform you of anything new, but the gospel that we know today is called Paul's gospel. The mystery revealer, we saw Jesus revealing a mystery in Revelation the only two in the New Testament are Jesus and Paul, and it's usually Paul. But Paul makes clear to us, he's not the revealer, he's the writer. So in verse 11 of Galatians 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, again, born-again Gentiles here, that the gospel I preach to you is not of human origin, nor did I receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So he will go on in this chapter to explain that he spends three years one-on-one -on -one with Jesus Christ. 
So the things that Paul writes are literally from the mouth of Christ. They are literally his words, which we learned in John 12 today through the kids, that originated in the Father. Paul is holding the pen. Christ is speaking, is what he is saying there. Didn't learn it in church. Didn't learn it from the apostles. Didn't learn it from any human being. Direct revelation. Paul, here it is. Write it down. So if you go to Galatians chapter 9, he is already preaching this one another of the church in his very first letter. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Verse 9 is what we need to hear. It's what Paul is saying in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We need to hear that verse often. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Because his plan to reach the world is to change me, to change us, to change the world. So make the most of every opportunity, especially the family of believers. And I love the language there because... So many people believe today that church means, well, that's everybody on earth that's a Christian. That's true, but that's not your family. I don't, I don't have an insight or an input on a church even going on down the street or in the next town. As believers, there's a kinship that, that makes us uniquely bound together in Christ, but what Paul is talking about here is your family what Jesus called his family, as opposed to his mother and his brothers and sisters. Turn to Romans chapter 4. In all of Paul's letters, so we're only going to look at a few verses, but he makes crystal clear that the priority of a Christian's life is the Christians that they serve Christ with. That's how God chooses. That's the arena that he chooses to change us so that we can be his ambassadors in the world. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 4, we could read chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, and he will keep expounding on this. But verse 4 of Romans 12 For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. One another has been introduced. Paul is now the theologian giving the gospel of Christ to the world, so specifically that it's called Paul's gospel, and the gospel includes church activity. It is Grand Central Station on earth where God is going to make people like his son and the primary evidence of salvation as we looked at on Wednesday night is loving one another. Reading on verse 6. So in verse 5, you belong to me and I belong to you. Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us and, and as I 
again, I said this last week, I think, so I won't speak on it too long, but gifts primarily are serving him in your church. So we read in 1 Corinthians 12 these apostolic gifts that Paul clearly had each one of them. And as the church goes forward, you will see that these gifts can be in every person. Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. If your gift is prophesying, representing God through his word, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, which we are all called to do, then serve. If it is teaching, which we are all called to do, then it is teach. If it is to encourage, which we are all called to do, then give encouragement. If it is giving, which we are all called to do, then give generously. If it is to lead, which we are all called to do, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, yes, which we are all called to do, do it cheerfully. So Paul is explaining here that these things, and this is something that we need to hear in 2022, you can't do these things through Zoom. You can't do these things listening to a... You can listen to a better preacher than you're listening to now if you're at home. But it's not church. We live in a time and in an age where people believe, I'm, I'm in church wherever I'm at. No, you're not. These one another things, encouraging each other, serving each other, loving each other, honoring each other, they have to be done person to person in person. And the church is so easily moved off of that today and all of these things, as we read going through here in the description of the church, it is bound together like ligaments with each person doing its part. And the only place where God can make me like his son to be fully effective in the world is in the church. So verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to the good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. If you just take that verse, imagine trying to do that through a screen. Imagine trying to do that through a phone call or through a text. When you honor one another above yourselves, you're saying my priority is you. I take into consideration the distractions and the difficulties and whatever it's going to take for me to do that, but I never move off my priority. I am devoted to you. I honor you above myself. Whatever inconvenience and difficulty that, that will come my way in order to be here to serve you takes a back seat. These are things as we go through Paul's letters that you cannot do when you're separated. So if that's true and that's the instruction when I'm somewhere else than this gathering, he is not working in my life. And the encouragement that Paul has talked about, we read it in Galatians, now we'll read it in Romans, we read it in Hebrews, this spurring one another on is person to person, in person, not our power, by the grace of God, but together. Verse 11 never lacking in zeal, but keeping the spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, 
Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Those are all instructions that are an ongoing, should become second nature to us as we serve each other in the Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is pointing us to the Bema seat, but he's talking about building church. First Corinthians 3, verse 9. This is what we literally are. We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So this building isn't the building. We are. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit as an individual. He wants to change me first. We are a building to God. A gathering of people. The building can burn down and we could stand in the the ashes and the rubble, and we're still the building. We're the building that needs builders, that will never stop needing to be built. It is an ongoing commission that we surrender to. Verse 10, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one of you should build with care. So every one of us is a church builder. We are called to it 24-7. So when we come together, he changes us to build church. So there's a progression from he's, he's changing me. He can do that anywhere all the time. He will most, um, Paul describes in Ephesians that to know the depth, the width, and the height of God, it can only be in the gathering. Why do we pray as groups in this church? Because there are things according to Jesus himself that he will only respond to in heaven in group prayer. So when we read where two or three are gathered in my name, that's talking specifically about prayer. That prayers in the gathering will be bound together in heaven. So... We've already read in Romans, faithful in prayer. That's part of our serving each other. I feel ministered to when I hear your prayers. That's just the beginning. We are inviting God's as a group to things where a group invitation is necessary. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, there's a simple verse where he says the same thing. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. That's the summary verse of chapter 12. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. There's nothing really unfamiliar that's going to come your way today, but just to understand this progression. What is predestination? It is determining the outcome of your choice while not determining your choice. What is the primary purpose of predestination? Romans 8.29, to make us like his son. That's the primary purpose of predestination. Now, as we see in Ephesians 4, Paul has already taught that in Ephesians 1 and 2. And then in Ephesians 3, Paul tells us that the primary mystery of God in history is the church. 
So you will see the, the word mystery more in Ephesians 3 than in any chapter in the Bible that Jews and Gentiles would come together and form one body in Christ. That's the primary mystery of God from Adam to the new heaven. That we would come together and form a body of believers. It is the first body of Christ in history. As I said, Israel was chosen as a nation whether they believed or not. His body is formed of each of us being a part, each of us doing our share, each of us loving one another, each of us serving one another. So as we pick this up, we get to number two, um, which is to make us together like Christ to unify us. So unity is plan, or Part two of his plan, verse 11, So Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, not to do the work, but verse 12, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. So Paul is amplifying what Jesus tells us in John 12, 26. Um, whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. And whoever serves me, my father will honor. Paul says that's in the church. That's what he's talking about. Your spiritual gifts are for other believers in your church. In other words, the fruit from the Spirit, as far as the giftedness, is from believer to believer. Your gifts show up on me, and my gifts show up on you. And that's why when they're listed, they're, they're serving, they're encouraging, they're showing hospitality, they're teaching, all of those things that the church is designed for, and these things cannot be accomplished when we are scattered. So we cannot be together 24-7, but church that is designated in the Bible here, is calling for us to be together completely and 100% of us serving. So verse 13, we are to do this until we all reach unity in the faith, until we're in full agreement, full serving, full loving, fully honoring each other above ourselves, fully devoted to one another, fully realizing that there are many parts in the body, but we all belong to all the other parts. So until we reach a few full unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, as we start to break down this chapter as well, this can't happen outside of the gathering. It cannot progress. We cannot get closer to this unless we are gathered, because that's where the grace of God is applied to the unifying of a church through the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, Then we will be no longer if infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemings. Uh, if I had a nickel for every time someone came to me, oh, I heard this preacher say this. Well, actually, this is what the Bible says about what he's talking about. And they're like, yeah, but, man, he was convincing. What keeps that from happening is growing in a body until we all reach unity 
until we're all of the same mind. All, all super smart theologians know, but always relying on the Word of God. Always serving Him by His instructions so that we won't be infants, so that we won't um, will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. That's the world we live in. We better stick to the church and to his plan. Verse 15. Instead of that, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every way, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. And this is what it's going to require. From him the whole body is held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. So the manifold wisdom of God, Paul will say in Colossians, is known to the world by what's happening in the church. So we reveal to the earth and its population the manifold wisdom of God when we are bound together as ligaments with each part doing its work, with an understanding in a body of any size. He wants 100% participation. He wants 100% serving. He wants us to to help each other in the time of need and to show hospitality and to always be ready to love each other. And in that, he can make us an immovable church that the gates of hell cannot withstand. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We could stay and make this point in any one of Paul's letter because it's all throughout his epistles. Um, if you notice in chapter 1 and verse 1 where Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. There's no other intro in the Bible like that by Paul together with the overseers and deacons. So all of these letters are delivered to churches. They're all instructions to churches. The letter to Philippi is written to a church. It sounds the same. It's not quite the same. In other words, Jesus, for example, says, um, John, I want you to write the book of Revelation. And he says in chapter 1, and he says, I want you to take it to the seven angels and the seven churches. And John would have delivered those to the preachers in those churches. This letter is written to the body. So the overseers and deacons are in this intro, but they're after the body, meaning I'm, I'm addressing the body as a whole. So when Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus, if he'd have received a letter like Ephesians, Timothy would have studied it, and then he would have brought it into the church. The letter to Philippi is, let's all sit down and see what he wrote to us. And let's dig into it. Meaning he is literally writing to a church. So when he, for example, says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's true about an individual, but that's not what that verse is saying. 
he is saying that in Paul's second missionary journey, when he went into Macedonia and a church was formed in Philippi, that's when the good work of that church began. And if you stay faithful, this church will become immovable and unified and uni unified in the knowledge of God. So he is saying there's a lot of verses in Philippi where it sounds like he's speaking to an individual, but the you is always the body in the book of Philippians. And in chapter 2, knowing that, therefore, if you have any encouragement being united with Christ and any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, there's that one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Jesus has just introduced um, communion. He has just washed all of their feet. And John chapter 13 begins with, um, he's going to now show them the full extent of his love. And then after he washes their feet, he says, you are to do the same. You are to lower yourselves, however low you need to be lowered, to be under the people that you are serving in your theology, in your mindset. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then obviously Paul goes on from there saying that he came down off his throne and lowered himself as far as he could be lowered. Paul says, that should be your example. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Where he is talking about the deity, the authority, the lordship, the sovereignty, um, the fact that not only did he create everything, but every ruler is under Christ in the heavenly realms and on earth. And he finishes that summary in verse 18 by saying, and he is the head of the body. So this is the crescendo of everything in verse 15 through 18 is that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So after he builds from, he created everything in heaven and on earth, rulers and authorities, all things were created in him and for him and through him. And then Paul says, and he's the head of the body, the church, so that he is over the church having supremacy and everything. What he says is what we do. He is the head of this church. Um, talking to somebody this week, and, and it's, it's a natural, when you're explaining the name of your church, people think you're saying Christ Church, which isn't wrong to say, but I slow down and say, no, it's Christ's Church. That the moment we lose that perspective, our lampstand is gone. The moment we decide I can be a part of a church 
but I don't always have to be interacting, then we've lost what he's saying. In that moment, he doesn't have supremacy. In that moment, he can't make me more like his son. In that moment, he can't make us unified. In that moment, the manifold wisdom of God revealed to the lost world is put on hold. Paul is stressing, as we look down to the last two verses of Colossians 1, how, how deep in the spiritual gut of Paul this is. Verse 28, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now listen to Paul's passion. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So what we read in Ephesians 4, that he, he, he sends the equippers to a church, to every church. It's up to them to equip or not. That's a huge part of the problem. But they are to equip 100% of the body to be ministers to serve in the church, to love each other, to grow from being comfortable together to suffering together, to sharing together, to offering hospitality and helping someone when you're worried about yourself if you do that and to cross that bridge. So Paul says here in Colossians my heart's desire is that in the body we can make 100% of people fully mature in Christ. And Paul is giving us, in verse 29, his heart for the church. For this reason, to this end, I strenuously, with all the grace, all the power, everything he gives me, my heart's desire, and he's writing this from house arrest prison cell in Rome is that you and Colossae would be so united in the Lord that all of you would become mature and it's likely to this moment that he's never even met these people. So it's similar to his writing a letter to Mendota. Turn back to Ephesians or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10. In your notes, I have for the next several verses that we're going to read that the church is plan A and that there is no plan B. And as we read these verses, we had just come out of verses that are saying, um, let us hold unswervingly to this hope that we have and let us encourage one another and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Church. That's the church. What's the, what's the goal of the church? To spur one another on towards love and good deeds until we all reach a unity in the faith. And Paul says, let's do it all the more as the rapture is approaching. It's more and more critical. It's like the world's condition before the flood. It's like Judah's condition before they went to Babylon. The church in the last days before the rapture is in its worst condition. So these commands for us to be bound together like ligaments are the most 
unnatural-sounding commands in the history of the church. Paul, Jesus, how can you expect me to put my family of believers ahead of my earthly family? There was a day when that made sense. It doesn't make sense today, but it's still true. Paul says, the closer you get to the rapture, the more you're going to need to hang on to these things or your church is going to die. It's going to be more and more critical. The world is going to be farther from the church than it's ever been. The church itself is going to be the Laodicean church that is, you know what, I'll do church and I'll come when I want and I'll do things on my terms and I like the people that I hang out with, but I'm really not a servant. Paul says, The closer you get to the rapture, the more important this is going to be. And then he shifts gears to really make clear that there is no other plan. Verse um, 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. What a transition from encouraging one another as the rapture approaches to wrath. Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? If he's not the head of our church... He's under our feet. Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who was insulted has insulted the spirit of grace for we know him who said it is mine to avenge. I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the the living God. So, the, the picture of God's will on earth from 33 A.D. until the rapture is the church. If you're not invested in the church, Paul would ask you, what are you inviting people to do? Well, to believe in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Jesus himself says, where, where I am, you are. Where I serve, you serve. I walk among the churches holding the teachers. That's what Jesus says. What does Paul say? Paul says that you honor, another, honor one another above yourselves and you're devoted to one another in love. And in Philippians he says, you elevate people above yourself. We come to church in 2022 because... This Sunday, it's a good idea. Paul says, you come to church every Sunday for others, not for you. You come for Christ. You come for others. You serve in a manner that puts them above yourself. And he talks about wrath and raging fire here. So, I'm not making a point that if you miss church, God will strike you dead. I would say if you miss church, you're not where he wants you to be. 
But the person who comes like Peter does in that boat, and he gets down on his knees and says, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Jesus says, follow me. And Jesus raises from the dead and he says, follow Peter. It's going to cost you your life. And Peter says, I'll follow. He's not telling me or that. The point that I'm making is that coming to Christ is serving in church. In other words, that's going to be the outcome. So the person that says, I've never read Hebrews 10. I've never read any of the verses that Jim has just read to me. I didn't know that I was supposed to do that. What Paul is saying in Hebrews 10, now that you've heard this, there's no plan B. Now that you have heard that the reason you actually come to church is to hold unswervingly to the truth, to spur one another on towards love and good works, and to do it more and more and more as the rapture approaches. And you've heard me say that if this is not your plan, there is no other plan. You are literally trampling the Son of God under your feet if you say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in church, but here's how I see it. He says you're, you're trampling Jesus when you do that, and you're grieving, as he would say in Ephesians 4, the Holy Spirit, by saying, no, unity in my church isn't the priority. In 1 John chapter 2, what Paul is saying in a very general way is the world or the church. John is talking about this in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes, from, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The will of God is to spur one another on towards love and good deeds so that we can reach the world as ambassadors for Christ. Verse 18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hours. But, or excuse me, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them really belonged to us. Paul says, do not give up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing. John says that when you have a habit of leaving and you leave, it proves that you weren't a Christian. That's John saying that, not me. How do you know, John, that they didn't really belong to you? Because their leaving proves it. We prove that we do belong when we serve Christ in the church. We are either saved before we serve him or we're not, so serving doesn't save us, but honoring him as Lord always has a beginning point. And the ongoing honoring of Christ is one another in the church. And if we do all of these things that Paul is, it will change us. 
and the world will see it. They won't see us as religious. They won't see us as self-righteous. They will see us as people who love each other. So Paul gives examples like Demas where when he writes to Colossae and he writes to Philemon, he's a co-worker with Paul. He's got Paul completely fooled. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy in his epilogue, Demas left because he loved the world. He's essentially saying, he fooled me for a few years. But now, like John said, his leaving proves. Paul is saying the same thing because Paul is saying he left because he loves the world. We just read in 1 John, if the love of the world is in you, the love of the Father is not. Finishing out Hebrews 10, verse 33. These are probably the the verses for us to take home. Actually, verse 32. He's reminding this church, like Smyrna, um, you could write down Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, um, to look at the same thing with Jesus speaking to a church who is persecuted. Remember, Paul says, those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured a great conflict of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Larry and I were talking about this this morning. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, taking this from Isaiah 26 and from Habakkuk 2, verse 38, and... But my righteous one will live by faith. And the exact quote from the the Hebrew is, and you see it in Habakkuk 2, 4, my righteous one will live by their faithfulness. Living by faith is serving today, serving tomorrow, serving the next day, because we know that we have a better hope than what we see. We know that what lies ahead is far better than what we see now. And we know what he has done for us. So he says, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Think about that verse. Who does God love? Everyone. When does God love? Always. When is God pleased? When we obey. Only when we obey. So again, I always try to look at earthly perspective, heavenly perspective. Earthly perspective says, what else do I have to do? Heavenly perspective says, what can I do? How can I serve? How can I honor the one who is only pleased with me if I don't shrink back? And then Paul says in verse 39, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved. This is an urging of Paul. This is is not Paul saying, you better be good. This is the heart of 
the Apostle Paul being so much like the heart of Jesus that Paul is saying, I want your meeting him to be the highest level possible. I want you, he will say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, what is, what is my hope and my joy? It's you. You meeting Christ and him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's Paul's focus in this whole chapter. It's not, you better do this because I did this. It's Paul saying, I know that you're obeying him now is precious to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help me to love people in church the way Paul is calling me to. In Jesus' name, amen.